In this episode of Info Product Mastery, we discuss copywriting and social media tips with Neville Medhora. This is Info Product Mastery, episode 20. Welcome to Info Product Mastery, the podcast that helps developers make life-changing money by building and selling online courses. I'm your host, Adrian Rosebrock. Today, we have Neville Medhora on the show, an expert copywriter at Info Product Creator with over 80,000 YouTube subscribers. Neville runs CopywritingCourses.com, a community and set of courses that teaches you how to sell your content online by learning copywriting and improving your messaging. I'm excited to have Neville on the show today so he can learn from his expertise. How are you doing today, Neville? Nice. That was a good intro. Did I write that? That was a, I was like, <laughs> that's a great way to describe it. And I was like, wait, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Honestly, what, what I normally do is when I have guests on is I like go and just like stalk them for like 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, I want to see like, what's their Twitter like? What's their LinkedIn like? What's their sales pages like? And then I like go to your H1 tags. I'm like, all right, how can I like just copy this H1 tag and like open a thesaurus figure out what word I'm going to replace it with and then like craft the message a little bit that way. It's, I don't know, from my copywriting days, I guess. <laughs> yeah, dude, there's actually a good trick. If you type in edit any website copywriting course, there's a JavaScript you can put in your Chrome book, bookmarks bar. And if you hit it, it allows you to use the developer tools to edit, but on the front end, not on the code. So oh. if you see a website that says like Adrian's website, and that's the H1 tag, you can just change it on the spot to see what it would look like. And actually you can move around all the images and stuff. It's one of the most popular posts I ever did. It's, it's so useful, especially if you're dealing with clients or trying to mock up a page without having to like go edit it and everything. Oh, Pretty that's awesome. so funny. That's, that's great. Like back, uh, back when Trump was president, I used to go to his Twitter when he had a Twitter and I would like use developer tools and like edit like whatever he was tweeting and then like insert my friends like handles and everything and just like send them <laughs> to spam them and send <laughs> these awfuls like I would just I'm type in awful stuff. That computer science PhD to, to good use. That's, that's I'm yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. using my PhD like to like troll my friends. <laughs> First of all, I researched you beforehand. Um, I admittedly not heard of you, but I researched you and normally it's just like someone's making a podcast. Okay, no big deal. But you had a computer science PhD. One, that sets you apart big time. I went into college doing computer science, got weeded out in, in year two. And so mass respect for that. But then two, what are you doing doing a podcast and info product stuff? How did that happen? I'm, I'm going to interview <laughs> you. I'm curious. Uh, you know what? Like, I had so much fun running Pyramid Church, my, my previous business. And I taught people what I do, basically, which is writing software that, that understands what's in an image, like face recognition, object detection, all that stuff. So I, I created books and courses, taught people how to do that ran the business for eight years. It was acquired, had a successful exit. But what I found like, was that when I was running the business, I didn't do a good enough job networking and building relationships. I was just so mm. focused on the business. And then I came out of it feeling like, honestly, like a bit lonely. So I was like, man, like this is cool. Like I'm effectively like retired. I have time to work on whatever I want, but I'm just finding myself just wanting to be around the creators being around the people who build things. And I just want to help them and facilitate them in whatever way that I possibly can. So it's, that's really my selfish reason for wanting to do it, is to get to know people better and then through these conversations, be able to help other developers follow in the same path that I did. Because it's, it's... What city are you in? I'm just outside of Albany in New York. Okay, so you're close, close to New York. I mean, there's a ton of creators in New York. I wonder if you mm -hmm. can start uh, hosting some in-person meetups. I, I do that on the pr um, pretty regularly small ones. And it, it really, really develops out your in-person network. And also the other thing, I noticed you're not super active on Twitter. Right. I, I, that's because my previous Twitter was part of the 
acquisition of the business. I had like 25,000 uh, followers on I Twitter. That, I don't know how long you've been doing this. What, maybe 10 plus years? Yeah, in the creator space for about 10 years. I will say, so so we're kind of like OGs because this hasn't been around for all that long, but I bet you've seen this shift from everyone used to have like a company Twitter, a company handle where you just post blog posts on their feed. Mm-hmm. It was almost just a way to like get people to your website. Whereas now the social platform is what you want them to stay on. Yeah. It's, it's it's quite a tectonic shift in my opinion. It's almost like I had to do a whole reframe. Circa around 2020, I was like, oh, I think things are completely different now. And so now, like two years in, I'm just like, I think it's going to be Twitter first rather than website first. And so yeah, if you want to meet a lot of people, by the way, Twitter's the way to go. I will say, bar none for nerds like you and me, where, you know, we're talking about PyTorch every once in a while. If you're talking about that, Twitter's probably the place you're going to make the most amount of friends and the fastest. It's, it's pretty incredible. And I think with your credentials, computer science, PhD, one, you'd really enjoy the content. Two, I think you'd really thrive on a platform like that. That's a great suggestion. And, you know, I've been curious about social media and how it's helping online marketers. Because, you know, when I was growing PyMH Search, I had the previous mindset of like, let's get them off the social media profile, get them on the actual PyMHSearch.com website, because oh, then I could good. get their, yeah, I, I can get their email address. I could like market to them, you know, because to me, I always thought that getting their email address was the most important, like getting into someone's inbox is like the most sacred of DMs, right? So how, how do you think that landscape is changing and how do digital marketers and content creators kind of handle that pivot? Yeah, in the year 1700, you go based on, is, let's say the, we're transferring back to the year 1700. The way to get information from my brain to your brain or my brain to a million people's brains is text. That is the only thing you could do. You can't do images, you can't do anything. You either handwrite or use Gutenberg's old printing press to do that. Fast forward, now we have phones, computers, Zoom, all that kind of stuff. So we can do it in all sorts of different manners. But remember, 20 years ago, let's say the year 2000, I entered college around 2001. There was no Facebook. MySpace was a real show. Not that many people were on the internet. And so, and it was very difficult. Like even email marketing was not as fleshed out as it was today. And so there just wasn't that many consumers on the internet. And now that's changed to where every single person on the planet is on it. And so it's a changing landscape. It's completely different. And so therefore, in the past, it was best to get people to your website because you can control it and get their email. Now there's many, 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 many different methods to get someone's email or contact information. Now remember, email is just a technology of our day. We're gonna look back in 100 years and be like, what was email? It'd be something totally different, right? And so we're still using this basic SMTP protocol to transfer information, but now there's Twitter where a lot of people are on it 20 times a day. There's Facebook, people are on it 20 times a day. There's, There's TikTok, et cetera, same thing, same thing. So if you can get exposure to other people, isn't that what you want? So via email, via TikTok, via Twitter, via YouTube, by what have you, is all good to me. And so now that these platforms are more and more fleshed out, I find myself personally maybe checking Twitter far more than I check my email. So I'm like, well, I'm on Twitter more. I admire people on Twitter. The people I get flustered around in real life are not celebrities. I don't care. But if I follow them on Twitter, I feel like I have this intimate connection with them. I feel like I have an intimate connection with YouTubers I follow. And therefore, social media has risen in prominence. If you can have a chart that shows how important is social media, 20 years ago, you'd be like, what am I, a 16-year-old girl talking about a breakfast? Versus now, it's just like, you know, Elon Musk is on Twitter every day. And so it's just like, okay, things have shifted. This is far different. I make more connections on Twitter. I learn more on Twitter. I feel like if you're not on Twitter and you're reading traditional media to get your news, you are at a way more disadvantage than I am. So, I mean, I think it's completely and utterly shifted now and to dismiss social media, I wouldn't even call it social media, 
it's just an overlay on top of the world. It's part of the world now. There's there's no there's no distinction anymore, in my opinion. Just kind of like a, a fabric over top of what already exists, sort of thing. Absolutely. I think the thing that's going to really cement that is AR, but we're not. I think we're a couple of years away from that, where there's going to be a layer over life. And I think that social media is currently almost there. It's just not the, the hardware's not there. Exactly. So that's, like, that's definitely going to be a thing. There, there's. I mean, me and you are talking through social media right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we've basically been linked. The world is better through social media, and a lot of people give it a bad name. They, especially in the United States, it's it's a very odd phenomenon. I see people bash social media all the time. I'm like, how do you think we know each other? How do you think we're hanging out right now? All the connections you make, a lot of people's relationships start or get fostered or get nurtured over social media. Yet everyone on it big time. So I don't know. I'm against that. I love social media. If you're addicted to it, that's your own fault, and you gotta you gotta learn to deal with that too. <laughs> I think there's like a certain like almost voyeuristic, like a positive voyeuristic attitude that comes in with social media where you, we were talking about celebrities like Elon Musk, like you get to feel like you're part of their lives to a certain degree by, by what mm-hmm. they post on social media, by you, by you following them, by you interacting with them. And like you said, you and I would have, wouldn't have met, wouldn't have interacted without social media. And I think that's really important to recognize. And I think it will be a profound shift as we transition out of email. And I don't know when that honestly is going to be. Like that could be five years now, it could be 30, 50 years from now. Changes like this, like they requires generations dying out, unfortunately. Like, well, well, here's, here's the thing. I make most of my money from email still. <laughs> I'll just yeah, say that. Right. I'll just say that. The ultimate funnel is to get them on email because you can totally control that modality. For the most part, all emails routed through Gmail, so technically. But for the most part, you own, you own that connection. And Email is a little bit less intrusive. You don't have to depend on someone going to Twitter. You don't have to depend on someone coming to Facebook. You can actually own that interaction within your inbox. And you can even get in their primary inbox by being a really high open rate for them or a really high interaction rate. So for that reason, I still say email is the king, but social media is catching up a lot. And here's the thing. Let's say I have 200,000 email subscribers. Do you know that? No, you do not. There's no way for you to know. So there's no social cue. But if I have 100,000 Twitter followers, you know that. So there's a social cue over there. So it's the difference between someone watching your video, a downloaded video, you don't know how many times they've watched it versus on YouTube, where it shows the number of likes, comments, etc, and views. So people have some social cues on it. So that's why email doesn't have that inherently social type of thing going on, which is a pro and con. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Kind of like that social proof required. Like if you're comparing two different SaaS apps, you're like, which one am I going to sign up for? And they have the exact same feature set, the exact same prices, but one account, you go on their social media, one has 100 followers and the other has 20,000 followers. Which one are you going to sign up for? Probably the one with more followers because you think it's more mature, there's going to be better support, it's going to be reliable, it's going to be there a year from now. You know, you're not going to have to switch providers. Let me, let me tell you why you should join Twitter and it's exactly because of this conversation. You were doing a podcast and I bet there's people that you want to interview that you think, huh, might be a little hard to reach or find their email, et cetera. Guess what, where you can do that? Twitter. It's the easiest place. Uh, one of our writers, Dan, did an intro between me and someone else. And uh, instead of finding the email, they just did an intro on Twitter. The guy responded right away. I said, send me a Calendly link. He did. And then we had a podcast set up in like literally a minute, like under a minute, this all happened. And I was like, the speed at which this happens on this platform so regularly is ridiculous. And so therefore, I think someone like you doing podcast interviews, et cetera, that Twitter would be a great place to kind of promote that. And then also promote your own uh, clips and all that kind of stuff, too. Can I also wonder if there's like a way to, this might be a little nefarious, to hack the system and be, because, you know, with Twitter, their ad targeting system allows you to target followers of someone, of like a single account. And I'm just like, man, what mm-hmm. if you really want to do a podcast interview with someone and you, you kind of like 
came around the back door a little bit by creating an ad that targeted the followers of that person, you know, mentioned who you are and what you're about and created a link for them to ping the account owner to be like, hey, you should talk to this person and then get their followers talking about it. We do stuff like this all the time. But honestly, with Twitter, you just say, hey, Balaji, you want to do a podcast? And I'm like, okay. It's just like you don't, you don't need to do all that stuff sometimes. That was like the Facebook, the Facebook way of doing it where you would target someone and just annoy them to all until they, they agree. But it's like, I feel like if you ask and enough people go like, hey, they, they tag onto that thread. Like Adrian's awesome. Adrian's awesome. He has a PhD. You'd love talking to him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that is actually just the fastest way. We're trying to get a result, right? And if the result is getting a podcast interview, what's the fastest way to do that? It may not be like taking out ads, designing a creative. It might just be, hey, you want to be on the pod? I've got 2 million downloads. You want to do it? <laughs> that, that might be enough. In fact, I've, I've noticed that that is generally the case. <laughs> so tell me about copywritingcourses.com. Like what's, what's up with this website? What do you do there? Copywritingcourse.com started as a little side project. So I was running a rave company circa 2010. I ran it for 10 years starting since high school. And then my friend Noah Kagan started AppSumo.com kind of off my couch. And so I started applying copywriting to House of Rave and it started becoming an email marketing company overnight rather than a SEO hoping and praying someone comes to my website and buying company. And so I started writing these, these great emails and I was like, no, let me try doing it for this AppSumo. Your emails suck, but he's really good at collecting emails. He was not good at writing the emails. I did it highest revenue day ever. We did it three times in a row, highest revenue days ever. We hired a bunch of writers to replace me. I trained him, et cetera. And from that, one of the things people kept saying for the AppSumo email list was like, hey, Neville, how come I'm reading all your emails and I know you're trying to sell me something? I know there's a hook. I know there's a catch every single time, but I read all the way through to the end. And I was like, that, my friend, is what's known as copywriting. And, uh, and it's, it's purposeful. The, the way I've crafted your brain to follow along this story is purposeful. So you learn as well as get sold. And they said, how can I do this for my own email list? And so I answered the question like a million times over email. And then I was like, let me just make a course out of it, which 10 years ago, or you know, roughly 2011, 12, when it came out, this was like a novel idea to like package up videos and sell them. And so we did that and it, and it just became like an AppSumo bestseller. So clearly we hit the nail on the head with copywriting and that eventually branched into its own company. And so more and more people were doing it. So uh, eventually copywriting course now it's like a whole community. So it's actually run on forum software. I don't even use WordPress for it. So there's a blog and there's a very active community inside where people say, hey, what do you think about this landing page? Is the pricing right? Blah, blah, blah. They ask you these questions. And then our writers, including myself, go in there and update it. Oftentimes just rewriting things, mocking them up, making them different. People ask pricing questions. So they'll say, what do you think of this pricing? And we're like, well, what if you do three-tier pricing? And here's how you do it. And we make different packages for them. And so that way, it's just like this, it's a, literally a community of creators just learning how to make all their stuff better in a community vibe. And then every Thursday, we do office hours. So people just come on and live. I just run it. We take about roughly eight to 10 questions and we literally update the questions live, live on wow. screen share. It's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, when I was learning copywriting, it was, it was a... <laughs> I mean, as a, as a developer, it's, it's tough because you're, you're thinking logically linear A to B. And I always tell people, listen, copywriting is all about two words, emotion and empathy, getting yourself into your customer's brain or potential customer's brain. If you do that and you are successful at that, the copy just naturally flows. Unfortunately, it's, it's just one of those things that it takes a ton of practice to get good at copywriting. Well, well see, I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit. I think in the past that people used to do these really long pages and stuff. And if you've noticed you're usually being sold by shorter and shorter content nowadays. And mm -hmm. the reason is there used to be a lot of fluff. You get someone on a landing page, you have to pay five bucks for that. You 
better get them hooked, make a really long page for them to get down to the bottom, they're invested, and then they buy. I actually think a lot of that is a little skeezy sometimes. And, and the, the thing is, shorter and shorter things are being sold. So if someone knows that they need, let's say, like testimonials at TO, uh, a build in public project I follow on Twitter by Damon Chen. If someone knows they need testimonials on their website, they don't know how to put them there. He shows a couple screenshots like, hey, this is how you do it. And you go, huh, cool, bye. That's it. Some of these sales cycles are way shorter. And so I do think that emotion and everything is good. It's part of it. But I think sometimes the logic is also very part of it. Sometimes, especially for software, it's like, just show the thing working. There's no need to explain a lot. You could just show a GIF of the stupid thing working. I think if you go to the Descript homepage, you'll notice just a video GIF, uh, someone editing their video, and it just makes it. That's all you need to know. There's not much more to know beyond that. There are some emotional things like make your podcast big, spend more time podcasting rather than editing. That's emotional, et cetera. But for some of it, it's just like just showing the thing working. And so (laughs) that's why we love software companies. It's so easy. Do you know John McIntyre from the McMethod podcast? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think I've been on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, have you really? Oh, man. He was the person who taught me copywriting through his emails Mm -hmm. and through his podcast. He's a person that I would love to be able to talk with because some of what he says aligns with what you're saying is it's like, no, just show the thing working. And sometimes that is enough. And he gets creative with it. Like he had a guy on his show who was literally creating seven figure sales pages by linking to his Google Doc. And the Google Doc itself was a sales page with GIFs embedded in it. And I'm like, that is brilliant. That is such a creative disrupt. Yeah, the brain doesn't change. The hardware that doesn't change is the brain. The hardware that does change, the software that does change is everything else, right? Whether you're selling on email, whether you're selling sales pages, whether you're selling, like if you're in China, going through something, or sorry, other countries, like WhatsApp is really big, right? So it's just like, you have to adapt to those things, but the psychology behind all these things is exactly the same. So whether someone's reading a sales page or a Google Doc, in my opinion, eh, it doesn't really matter. Small, small detail. So you, like, you were telling me offline how you had actually other people creating content for you, and then you were packaging up and selling it. So you weren't necessarily you know, creating all the content yourself, which is something that I see a lot of content creators falling into the trap of doing. Like, I would love to hear more about that process and how that worked for you. Two things. I think for copywriting course, people do partially come for me, right? Most of it is, is me or me interviewing someone else and we live updating things. However, I think what you're referring to is with AppSumo, we produced a ton of different products. So mm-hmm. back in the day, when kind of like selling an informational product, uh, you know, YouTube wasn't what, what it was now. So you couldn't get all the information there. Selling a product was a novel idea. And so a lot of people just didn't know how to do it. They didn't have the, they, like, what kind of camera do you use? Do you like, we didn't have the phone technology wasn't as fleshed out either. And also just like uploading and serving video and password protecting it was, was very difficult back then. And so we would do that all for other people and then sell it through our own platform at Sumo. So we did a lot of those. We made tons and tons of digital products like that over the years. I probably myself produced about 12 of them that were other people's. So directed the whole thing, told them, you know, not tell them what to say, but like direct them. So Mm -hmm. I kind of learned how to be a little bit of a director and then package up all the tech behind it and everything. And then myself, I probably put out 13 to 15 digital products. Okay. You know, one, of the, one of the struggles that I had when I was running PyImage Search was getting and finding content creators. And granted, I was in a highly technical niche where you, know, you really needed a, a higher level computer science degree, like a master's or a PhD to explain some of these topics. At least that was the case like five or six years ago. Now, playing field's a little more even. But 
but my point stands that sometimes it's really hard to find these content creators. How did you go about doing that? Do you have any tips or tricks to help other info product creators? Once you have a large enough audience, they come to you. Oh, okay. Right. That, that's one of my goals this year is to get 100,000 Twitter followers. And the reason is people come to me rather than me hunt, go for them. I heard Cody okay. Sanchez, I interviewed Cody Sanchez. She's really blown up online right now. And she got on social media. So deal flow would come to her instead of having to go find them, explain who she is and then invest. Instead, if they come to you, it's more likely a done deal right away. And so I think that was the way that we did it. By having a large enough platform, we said, hey, who has a great product? Or we'd see someone wanting expressing interest that has some good credentials. And then we would approach that person and say, hey, what if we just did this? We produce the thing, you get 40%, that kind yeah. of thing. That makes a lot of yeah. sense. I mean, we, we hired from our list for the vast majority of our positions. There are only like three mm. or four positions in, in Pi Research that were hired for externally. So people who mm -hmm. came on to create content for us, they already knew who I was. They already knew what the mission of Pyme Search was, and they already understood the culture. So it, it really short-circuited the entire process of getting someone up to speed. 100%. I mean, it, it's funny. Whenever we hire writers for Inside, one of the things is like, who's already participating? And you can see the quality of their work. Is it bad or is it good? And then the ones that are really good and consistent, you say, hey, would you want to get paid to do this, right? So so that's a that's a great way to do it. Also, you can go on YouTube, you can go on TikTok, et cetera, find who's talking about the subject you want and finding creators who aren't that big. If they're really big, they probably don't need you. But finding creators that are still in the beginning phases that are either exactly where you want them to be or just a, a smidge away and approach them. And so it's so much easier now that so many people have YouTube channels, TikTok channels, et cetera. I mean, there's so many sense. creators probably talking about whatever subject you're talk you want. So the audience for this podcast is predominantly developers, the technical people. Do you have any advice like specifically for them as they're working on the messaging, as they're working on email and working on their social media? Yeah, I mean, I love, I love developers and everyone because they actually can market things. They can make things, right? I, I like builders that can actually make things. And so I always admire that. One thing you might want to do is just show it. So a lot of people, they try to talk about the tech behind why something works. So I can't tell you how many like company, VC companies that doing pitch decks, they have some Indian founder that's like, well, the recurrent neural network works in such a way that we're like, no, no it, it just doesn't matter. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter on, on the front end. If you're talking to a CTO who cares about this, that's a little bit different, right? But if you're talking to the end user, you just say like, this recommends the best results for a search. Okay, there you go. And then you can show it in action that you type in wedding dresses and it finds all the places with wedding dresses. If you just show that GIF, oftentimes you could bypass much of the copywriting. Like think about whenever you go on Amazon, what you're looking at is mostly the pictures and you kind of scroll through and make a decision based on that and the number of reviews. You don't necessarily read all of the copy. Also, if you look at a lot of software web pages, which are sales pages, which I think are great, you'll usually see an image or a moving GIF of the software in action and explaining what it is. It'll show a video of you editing text and it says, edit in text instead of video. This is 10 times faster. And you're like, got it. I understand it. So I will say for people making software products and very technical products, it's actually a combination of showing with a headline and maybe a subheadline. It's, it's quite simple, actually. So okay. GIFs and basic things like that and, and make them simple. Sometimes people will show the whole screenshot of their entire screen. I'm like, let's just cut everything out and just show the feature itself. Let's just zoom in on that and then say, this is what it's doing. Here's how it helps. Repeat. That alone awesome. can really help a lot of uh, technical people. Or they jump in copywritingcourse.com and we can help them do it. So Absolutely. I love the concept of you guys having this community that not only you're participating in, but 
there's other people who are active in there. I mean, it shows like there's a there's a ton of active interest in what you guys are doing and getting feedback on your copy when you're learning. I mean, that's the fastest way to learn from someone who's already an expert because again, it's it's a little bit of a nonlinear process. You need, you need that feedback loop involved to you need get the rest. speak quickly. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you're trying to become a better welder. What's something that you should probably be doing? You should be welding every day. There you go. So uh, we can extrapolate if you want to become a better writer, oftentimes it's about writing every day. So there's a, there is a, a lot that you can learn, of course, just by consuming. So that's the, the old style of courses where it's just like you watch video of me and I tell you what to do. But ultimately, that has a pretty low action rate. And so what we do is we have assignments and such in the course where we say, rewrite this tweet, and then you do it, and then someone will give you feedback. And then also, even if no one gave you feedback, by the way, just the act of doing it is quite helpful. So we tried to make a goal for the course. And we were just like, if you hit 50 or 100 posts, you'll get 2x to 10x better at writing just by the nature of writing more. A lot of people want to write better, but then they don't write anything except emails. And so actually version two of the course that we're making is going to be just a whole curriculum. We're we're taking some time to define exactly what that curriculum is because we want every student to go through it. But we're making the curriculums like how can we make everyone 2x better at writing and then if they go the extra mile, because let's be honest, not everyone's going to, we can make them 10x better at writing. Okay. Yeah, that makes so a lot that, of sense. That's going to be version two of the course. But already we got some of that stuff in and like doing assignments is extremely helpful for people. How does that compare to something like copy hour, you know, where you're actually handwriting out each and every word of like an old school sales letter to learn copywriting? So I, I'm a big fan of that. I've done it. But what I will say is after the third one, the diminishing returns kick in at roughly 90%. So the first time you copy an ad, I think you're learning so much stuff you're getting 50% better right away. And then the second time you copy your ad, you're getting about 70% better. And then the next time you're getting about 80% better. So as you can tell, the delta of increase of better you get is lower. And so what happens is I think diminishing returns kicks in after three, and then it becomes redundant. And people who do it over and over, I think there's some value in it. I just think the diminishing return starts kicking in really heavy. And it's like like an asymmetric rise in diminishing returns. Yeah, you don't see people doing it a hundred times, but what you do is you copy that first ad and you go, oh, I can rewrite my tweet that way. I can rewrite my email that way. Right away, you get something out of it. By the fifth one, I think it's not as good. Not saying that copy hour isn't great, but it's just like, I think that has diminishing returns. That's all. What about like the AI copywriters? I think it's fantastic. I don't think it's 100% there yet. I think what it's really good at is saying, write an article about copywriting and it'll, it'll go do it. It'll kind of search the web, find some stuff and make quote unquote unique content. That's debatable, but I do think it is unique. I do think it is creative. It is taking different things and putting them together. That's creativity. That's what our brains do. And so it is doing those things. The problem is you're giving it a short prompt and, give, and it gives you out longer content. The goal is not longer content. The goal is actually becoming shorter content in certain ways and unique content and experiments. So if you want to say someone wants 10 different subject lines for a Google ad, which you could only write roughly 140 characters or so, AI is really good at that because there's not much you can do. There's not a lot of creativity. It's just saying, bath stuff, 10% off, get it now here in Austin. If you want a bunch of different versions of that, the AI is really, really good at that. Currently, it's always getting better. And then if you want a full blog post, I think it actually doesn't write really good blog posts just yet. Okay. But that stuff is coming along. And it's kind of funny, like every time, I'm sure you're a, you're a big, you're a technologist kind of person. Every time a new technology comes along, it does destroy some jobs. Usually those jobs suck, though. So, for example, back in the day, people were lighting lamps, literally by hand, kerosene lamps for the the sidewalk. 
nowadays it's a, it's a stupid idea and the lamps are so tall you can't even access them, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of a, a job that people didn't necessarily want. But then what it paved the way for was the whole world to light up through electric lamps that no one needed a light, right? So similarly, I think a lot of the AI stuff with the images is even cooler, in my opinion. So before people are like, well, what's going to happen to designers? It's like, okay, there's about 30 million people in the world that know how to use Photoshop. Well, guess what? 5 billion people in the world are going to have access to amazing images. So the amount of creativity that's going to unlock is, is immeasurable. And you can either be afraid of it and use Photoshop to design images from scratch still, or you can utilize AI as part of your workflow and do a lot more images for a lot more people for a lot more money. And so it's just whichever way you want. And so I've always been a big fan of the AI copywriting stuff. I don't actually use it a lot in a lot of my workflows because a lot of times people are not saying, hey, Neville, how can we make this headline better? Let's write 40 different versions of it. They're just saying like, which one of these would work better? And so just from my experience, I'll say, this would probably work better and you don't need to modify it that much. You just need to like put some social proof in it. And so um, the AI stuff is great. I think we already use it. If you use Google Docs, you already use Gmail, it automatically completes. AI writing is definitely going to be a thing. It is a thing and it's something to look forward to. But I think writing a full blog post about it would be bad. If you're just saying, what is copywriting? Eventually, Google will have a no-click search that answers that itself, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you say, what is copywriting? Here's my example of how I took a food truck from 40 grand a month to 100 grand a month. That's a good blog post that the computer maybe cannot write yet. Right. It's yeah. You need that practical real world experience that only an expert may know. That's not yet distilled into artificial intelligence. If you want a definition article, I think Google will be replacing all of those. I mean, Google, I think 40% of searches on Google right now are no-click searches. Huh, interesting. I didn't know Meaning, that. Yeah, if, if you type in how to make an apple pie right now, I guarantee Google will have steps to make an apple pie, just a high-level overview. That's a scary thing for or, content creators. <laughs> I mean, or, or, I mean, or it's a good thing because just remember a lot of searches going to stuff like TikTok. So I was, I was cooking a potato the other day and I didn't really know how, but I'd already started the oven and everything. And I was like, I just need to know how to roughly cook a potato. And I look, go on Google and it shows how to cook a potato, but then I click on the results and there's all these ads. It takes forever for my phone to load up. I can't even find the recipe. I go on TikTok, there's 20 second videos that show the whole thing. Wow. Okay. Is, is that bad for content creators? Cause there's this whole other class of content creators on TikTok, YouTube, et cetera, that are getting all the searches rather than article makers. So what you're saying, it's bad for content creators, wrong. It's bad for content creators making long blog posts. True. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it kind of goes that. back to your, to your example of like the lamplighters, the kerosene lamplighters, where it's like, yeah, they didn't have work anymore, but it created this entire new class called electricians, which by the way, are extremely high paid positions for, for the trade industry, right? So you have to have a little bit of disruption in order for something new to emerge. Also, the disruption doesn't happen right away. I think in software, it happens a little faster because everyone has access to it right away. But like lamp lighters didn't go out of business. Like they still exist in certain countries in certain places. Like they're, they, they're still there. It's just like there, there's a shock to the system of like there's this new technology. Everyone gets afraid of it. And then what happens is people start using it and they're like, actually, these new lights are pretty cool. Like this is, this is better. And then slowly over time, people start getting used to it and using it. So I think you were currently seeing that so obviously with electric cars, where a lot of people are like, well, gas is better. Then they try an electric car, and then they're like, okay, this is pretty cool. And then eventually you go back to a gas car and you're like, oh, it, it's wasting fuel while I idle and sit still, whereas electric car uses no electricity during that time. And so it, it, you start see, realizing like the new technology is better and there's a slow transition that happens away from it. And everyone starts incorporating electric cars into their, 
their fleet, et cetera, and, and then finally it replaces. And by that time, no one's saying, oh, the lamplighters are all gone. It was, it's usually a slower transition than people expect. So similarly, I think a lot of the AI stuff, like you use AI-enabled things on your phone all the time. Every time you take a picture, guess what's making that picture look better? AI. You know, it's like you use it everywhere. So it's like when people are afraid of it, I think that's not necessarily the wrong thing. thing is to maybe jump in and explore it a little bit more. Now, if you're, we're talking a couple steps down of AGI, where it's smarter than human, yeah, that gets a little mucky, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> I think that's a good place to wrap it up, Neville. Thank you so much for being on the show. If a listener wants to reach out, see what you're up to or follow you, what's the, what's the best place for them to find you at? I say copywritingcourse.com slash newsletter. Sign up. I send it this great, the, the most successful thing I ever did with my newsletter is the Friday newsletter we send out. I also send out other articles about copy and stuff that you'll like, but then Friday is great. And then I'd say on Twitter, at NevMed, check it out. And then if you want to jump in the course and actually talk to me directly, like let's say tomorrow, Thursday, copywritingcourse.com slash join, join it. So that's a great place to start. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Neville. No worries. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, Adrian. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at questions at infoproductmastery.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please leave a five-star review in whatever podcatcher app you use, whether it's Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or Spotify. Not only do these reviews help motivate me to create new episodes, but they also help other developers, educators, and entrepreneurs find the show. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.